So this week, I don't know if you've had this experience yet. Um, I grew up in Prineville, and I didn't have any allergies. And then I went away for 10 years, and when I came back, I had every allergy for some reason. And this last week, I started the week with a cold. And then about the middle of the week, it, turned, it like morphed into allergies. It was like cold and allergies. And I wasn't sure what I had about Wednesday. And then by the time Friday came around, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've definitely got allergies. And to prove it, I want to show you a picture of my bees. Because they've been busy this week. And if you look carefully, you can see bright yellow patches. You see those? Like, I'll, I'll circle them here for you. Those are, that's pollen. Okay, that's pollen in the legs of those who have been out foraging. And they have these little pockets on their legs that they stuff their pollen into. And they're bringing it back into the, into the uh, hive. So I love my bees, but I hate pollen. I don't know how that, how that works. But... I'm just proving to you that I've got allergies, and that's, if I sneeze up here, if my, if my throat sounds gunky, that's why. Anyway, that's be- totally beside the point. It has nothing to do with the sermon. Not even connected in any way. This does, though. There's a famous saying that um, is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. The truth is that St. Francis probably never said this. Um, However, the sentiment is understandable. It's a good quote, right? It resonates with most of us because we've all had the experience of people who maybe perhaps proclaim the gospel, speak the gospel, and yet their lives or even the way in which they proclaim the gospel doesn't actually line up with the gospel, and so there's, there's been a lot of damage done. Tragic consequences have happened under the banner of the gospel because uh, people proclaim, but their lives don't, don't line up with the gospel. And then if, if the gospel is perhaps presented in an insensitive or unloving way, have any of you ever been accused of being a Bible thumper? Or do you know any Bible thumpers? Okay, and, th- and that's kind of sometimes what we do and we catch the reputation Because when the gospel is presented or preached, it's oftentimes diametrically opposed to the actual message that's being preached. So so we can resonate with this. We go, yeah, oh, yeah. And the truth is, in this, that our lives will preach. And yet, we kind of use this sometimes, I think, to actually avoid having to preach. We, We use something like this to avoid having to share the gospel. Because all we really have to do is live it out And God will take care of the rest, right? If I just live in a way that's loving, if I live in a way that's sacrificial or kind, then if people come and ask me, then I'll talk to them, but I don't have to take any initiative. This sure sounds much easier than going out and talking about Jesus to people who might get offended at our words, or a relationship might be broken because of the gospel. Speaking the gospel, if we're honest, can be awkward, uncomfortable, Scary. It could actually cost us something. The truth in in these words is that our lives will preach. The question is, even if our lives preach, should we be silent? Has God given us a get out of preaching for free card? Well, and you may be disappointed at the answer, but the biblical answer is an emphatic no. No. Because preaching is actually a necessary component 
of the gospel itself. In fact, the word preach literally means to announce or to declare or to proclaim. And the word gospel literally means good message or good proclamation. The gospel is by nature a proclamation. And so it necessarily has to be proclaimed. The gospel is a message of good news And a message of good news has to be spoken. It must be vocalized. In order for people to respond to a message, guess what? They have to hear it. The gospel story must be told, as Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone proclaiming, without someone speaking the word? If we are to hear and listen and believe and obey and call on the Lord, we must hear. Now, as we've worked our way through our mission statement over the last few months, these last three and a half months, we've come now to the final piece. Our mission statement is, try to say it with me, it's on the front of your bulletin, to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. Good. And we've looked at most of that so far through January through March. And this, this month, we're really looking at the idea of proclamation. What does it mean to proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel? And to guide us this morning, I'd, I'd invite you to turn to the passage that Mary Lou read for us earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we've heard these words from the Apostle Paul's second letter, we think. It might have been a conglomeration of it. It might have been his third letter. We're not sure. But we call it the second letter to the Corinthian church, or 2 Corinthians. And this passage that, we, that we're looking at today has been called by one commentator that I read this week, quote, the most pregnant, difficult, and important paragraph in the whole of the Pauline literature. Okay, so of all of the 13 letters that Paul writes, this guy says it's the most pregnant, the most difficult, and the most important paragraph of all of them. But to get our heads around this passage this morning, to kind of jump into the difficulty of it and, and mine what is there to understand it, I'd like to tackle it under three headings this morning. So the first heading is the message, second heading is the messengers, and the third heading is the motivation. So we'll begin with the message, which is, This message of of what's called the great exchange. At the center of this passage is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is right in the middle. And the beauty of the gospel revolves around four great exchanges. And the first exchange that we find here is the exchange of life for death. Look at the end of verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the end of the verse where it says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, the scriptures are very clear that every human being born into this world inherits inherits a sinful nature. And so because we inherit that nature, guess what we get with it? The benefits, the inheritance of a sinful nature is physical death, and I think you probably throw taxes in there too, right? The two, the two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. It's tax season. Welcome. Congratulations, everybody. Death and taxes and spiritual death as well. 
Because we inherit those from our father, Adam. Death is our inheritance. It's handed down to us from our first parents, and it's a generational thing. We all get in on it. But for those who place their faith in Christ, Romans 6 tells us we are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And put these two passages together, we see that if Christ had not died, we would still be dead to God and alive to sin. We would be stuck in our self-centered lives. Yet for our sake, what did Jesus do? Jesus died and was raised. We celebrated that last week at Easter. Jesus died and was raised, and in in that, he's freed us to die with him and also to be raised with him as well. Again, raised again. And in this great exchange, his death becomes our life. Through his death, he gives us life. What an exchange. And this is open, I think. This is how the word all in this passage, in this verse, is to be understood here. Where he says, he died for all, therefore all have died. It's to be understood as those all of those who believe. Life for death. The second exchange we find in verse 17. It's the exchange of new for old. We get what's new for what was old. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And in our connection with the old, with the fallen creation, we're lost in our sin. But to be in Christ to place our faith in him, now to be identified with him and connected with him for eternity is actually to be part of the new creation, to be an entirely new creature in Christ. And as new creations, our new life actually anticipates not just that we will get to spend eternity in heaven, not just that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card, But our life now, our changed new life, anticipates the fact that Jesus is going to make everything new. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where we get to live with him in it. And I can point to each of you who are a new creation and say, oh, you prove it. You prove the fact that Jesus will do that one day. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. In Christ, the old you has passed away, and the new you is now on the scene. The third great exchange is friendship for enmity. Friendship for enmity. We find this third great exchange in verses 18 through 20. So we start at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, listen to this, be reconciled to God. Now, humanity, that's you and me, we're the ones who rebelled against God. It's our fault. And usually when you have to take responsibility for something, you should fix it yourself, right? But God is the one who fixes it. God is the one who comes to reconcile us to himself. He's the one who makes the first move towards mankind. We created the problem. God is fixing the problem. Reconciliation is God's work, which he does through Christ. Jesus came to restore right relationship 
between God and a bunch of his hostile, traitorous enemies. But how does God accomplish this? Well, he does it through the removal of the very thing that is keeping us separated from him. The very thing that's keeping us as his enemies, which is sin. Our sin, our trespasses, our guilt, our rebellion. And so through the work of Jesus, who, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, through the work of Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We're justified, which means that God no longer counts our trespasses against us. He no longer counts our sin against us. He, never, he no longer looks at us and sees guilty. What he sees is Jesus. He sees a clear ledger, and God treats us now as if we had never sinned. I mean, that's the reality of justification. That's the reality of what Christ has done for us through his death, is to win us a clean record in Christ. We are at peace with God. And this is all because of his work on our behalf. Now, the fourth great exchange is the exchange of righteousness for sin, which I just spoke about, but we see it in verse 21, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is pure and sinless. He's perfect, yet he willingly chose to become human, to take on our nature, to, to identify with us. And then not only that, but to take our sin upon himself. He chose to bear the weight, to shoulder our sin, to take the shame and the guilt and the punishment that was ours on himself. He became sin for us. And without doing anything, you and I, who were sinners from birth, Receive Jesus' perfection, his sinlessness, his righteousness. This is the message of the gospel. This message of the great exchange between Jesus and his people. And this message should cause us to be both amazed and grateful. Praise Jesus that these great exchanges have happened. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that we're called to proclaim, not to hide not to just seek to live out quietly and not have anybody notice us, but to actually proclaim. And so we are messengers. And there's a grand paradox here that God takes the greatest treasure in the universe, God takes the gospel, and places this unsurpassed treasure into these kind of homely, homemade, earthenware vessels. You look up to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, and Paul points this out in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure, this great treasure of the gospel. We have this in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And the point here is that God uses what is ordinary. God uses what is mundane, what is weak, what is despised, what is sidelined. He uses what's looked down on by the world to carry the priceless gospel to the world. And we look at God and we think, you'd think you'd figure out a better way to do that. Like maybe a safer way to do that. But he hasn't. He's given it to us. Well, why does he do that? Well, first, this verse tells us that he does that to show his power. 
to show that it's about him and not about the vessels, and he gets the glory. But secondly, I think he uses weak messengers because he wants the messenger to reflect the message. He wants us as messengers, our lives, to reflect the message. The gospel message is a message of weakness in the face of power. It's a message of sacrifice in the face of violence. It's a message of substitution in the face of sin, in the place of sin. God sent his eternally glorious and sinless son not to be some dictatorial ruler who just keeps us under his thumb, but to come as a servant. Jesus came in weakness and in humility to purchase forgiveness and reconciliation for his people. So there's, there's a way in which it's a paradox that he would, he would take and put this message in clay pots and clay jars. But he does it for his glory and he does it because he wants the messengers to reflect the message. But there's another paradox for gospel messengers and it's that God reconciles enemies to himself. And then he makes those enemies, he makes those reconciled into reconcilers. You see that? He makes the reconciled into reconcilers. The gospel message creates gospel messengers. In verse 19, God entrusted us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we become these messengers and we carry now a message of reconciliation, a message that we ourselves have accepted and experienced and been changed by because we've been recipients of it. Now we go and we carry it. We are all ambassadors making an appeal to others. We've previously responded to this appeal made to us. So intrinsic to the message is the passing on of the message. Of the message. That's, that's the nature of the gospels, that it would get passed on by those who accept it. And since Christ died for us, our lives are forever changed. So look at verse 15. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. And as sinful human beings, our overwhelming propensity is to live lives that are totally centered on us. To give our energy, our attention, our care, and our concern to the things of the world. So we get preoccupied with things like work, with stuff, with our health, with our families, or activities, or sports, or careers, or mortgages, retirement accounts, vacations, safety, comfort, a plethora of these things that we give our attention, that take our attention and our worry and our concern and our energy, and we're consumed with the cares of the world, and as a result, our identity as messengers, as Jesus himself said, gets drowned out in the busyness of life and the cares and the concerns of this world. But the gospel should, it should not only transform who we are, but also our perspective, it should transform how we look at the world, and it should perform, or it should transform, excuse me, the things that catch our attention and that we give our attention to. And it's actually a shame, a shame that we will one day give an answer for, that our identity as messengers gets put on the back burner for most of us due to the cares of the world that drown out the centrality of God's kingdom. But friends, 
Christ died in order that he would replace me on the throne of my life. He died so that he would replace you on the throne of your life. He reconciled us so that we could now be reconcilers, messengers, and ambassadors for the gospel. The ambassador of reconciliation is is the one also who understands then, has this new perspective that God's opinion is the only one that matters. Right, verse 11, the last part of the verse. But we who, what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about what? About outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. You see, the ambassador of reconciliation may look like a complete idiot to the world. In fact, we should, honestly, in some aspects, look like idiots if our lives line up with the gospel message because our lives won't line up with the world's message often. I mean, didn't Jesus himself look like a fool Didn't he look like a weakling when he was arrested and tried and beaten and hung on a cross without fighting back or saying anything in his own defense? Didn't he look like a loser? The Apostle Paul himself was not highly respected, even even to the Corinthian church, many of whom thought he was weak and wasn't the kind of glamorous pastor that they wanted. He was critiqued and slandered because his life honestly looked a little bit insane. How many times is this guy going to go to jail? How many times is he going to get almost stoned to death and beaten? What is the deal with him? Anyone in their right mind would have given up decades before the Apostle Paul did. But here's how Paul addresses this critique in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if we're out of our mind... If we seem like we're crazy, it's for God. But if we're in our right minds, it's for you. And why? Because the love of Christ controls us. In other words, we've been commanded to love God and love others. And a life lived loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will look insane to the world. If we're out of our minds... It's for God. If we look like we're crazy, we're doing it for God. What does it matter, though, if the only opinion that really matters is God's opinion? And a life lived loving others as ourselves will mean being all things to all people. Persuading, in verse 11, trying to persuade people. Verse 20, appealing to people with this message in a way that makes sense to them, in a way that's reasonable to them. Persuading and appealing so that any and all might be saved. For in our right minds, it's for you and your salvation. For the love of Christ controls us. Which brings us really to the final part here, which is the motivation. What is the motivation for us to be messengers? For us to be ambassadors of reconciliation? And take this great message of the great exchange to the world, to the people we know and love. And there's, there's a twofold motivation, and it's fear and love. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Anytime you find a text in the Bible that begins with therefore, what do you do? Find out what it's there for, right? So we have to look back to the previous section in which Paul expresses 
kind of eloquently his desire to go and be with Christ. So it's kind of like saying, I would, it'd be nice just to die and go be with Jesus because I'll know I'll get to be with him. And it's not, it's not that he's being morbid. He's not dwelling on death. He's not considering suicide. He's not bemoaning his lot and his suffering in his life. He's just saying, I love Jesus so much, I want to be with him. There could be nothing better than that. And he says in verse 10, so whether we are at home, that is with Jesus, at home with Jesus, or away, which is here in this life on earth, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. We persuade others. So Paul is utterly convinced here that all people will one day face the judgment of Christ. Every single one of us will stand before Christ one day. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus. And at this judgment, it's clear that Christ will reward those who have been faithful in accordance with their faithfulness. And those who have been unfaithful in accordance with their unfaithfulness. The reality of judgment should motivate us. It should motivate us in at least two ways. And the first is the fact that we will each give account of our own actions to God. We'll stand in front of Christ and he will ask us, why'd you do that? What did you do? Have we lived then, as Paul says in verse 9, in a way that pleased God? And Paul tried to do everything in a way that would please God. Have we been obedient to his commands? Have we been faithful with what he's given us? Or have we lived for ourselves using all the wonderful gifts he's given us for our own benefit? As we've already seen, God judges in different ways than we judge. He's not swayed by outward appearances. So we shouldn't give much weight to outward appearances. He doesn't care how you look. He doesn't care how popular you are or what kind of car you drive, how much money you have. He's concerned with our hearts. And the only opinion that should really matter to us is God's opinion, the opinion which will, by the way, have the final word on that day of judgment. So, fear of the Lord. <laughs> It matters. It's in Paul's mind. It should be in our mind. The second reason that judgment should motivate us is that everyone we meet, every person in this room, everyone who lives in your household, everyone who lives on your street, everyone you go to school with, you go to work with, everyone you've ever met will one day meet Jesus and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we should be serious about the inevitability of divine judgment on every human person we meet and not be flippant then about our part as God's messengers of reconciliation. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, that idea of the fear of the Lord, it's a major theme throughout Scripture and it refers in one sense to terror, like we should be terrified. There's a terror there, but there's, there's an awe mixed with it. There's a trembling in our boots that's also drawn to this God whom we are to love. The fear of the Lord is both love and, res and respect for him. It's to stand in awe of him and to live like he's watching, 
to live like we're, we're, we're acting and living in front of him, in front of his benevolent goodness and omnipresence all the time. But it's also to live in light of the coming judgment as if God is watching and will one day give, ask us to give account for our lives. And what should motivate us to persuade people is our desire to please him above all. So the fear of the Lord should motivate us, but also the love of Christ should motivate us. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. And this verse speak, the question is really, is, is this verse speaking of our love for Christ or Christ's love for us? Yes, exactly. Thank you. I think it's both. I think it's both. And first, as we've already seen, Christ's great love for us is made clear in the gospel. We've already seen that. that he loved us so much that he died for us, was raised for us, took our place. His love is expressed in his servanthood. It's expressed in his sacrifice on our behalf by inviting us into his family and making us sons and daughters, by his becoming a substitute for us, by his taking on our sin. Christ's love is evident, and that love for us should control us. But you look at the life of Paul and the way that he talks about Jesus, and Paul has a deep love for Jesus, which in his life surpassed anything else. He deeply desired to be present with Jesus. And if he couldn't be with Jesus, he wanted to completely live his life for Jesus. And for Paul, as it should be for each of us, the ultimate reality is this, that Christ is worthy. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our fear. He's worthy of our lives. He is worthy for us to live a life that looks foolish, that's painful, that might be destitute, might even be considered insane for the sake of Christ. Which brings us to verse 15. It says this, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. See, Jesus isn't just some man. He's just not some Jew that lived and died in the first century. He's not just a religious teacher or an example of morality to us. He is the eternal son of God who has given himself for us that we might now give ourselves back to him. He's the great reconciler, the perfect ambassador. And when we come to him as our king, when we become ambassadors of reconciliation, armed, by the way, with the greatest news in the universe, it changes everything. It should change us. It should change how we see the world, how we see others as those for whom Christ died. Our lives will preach. They will preach. But if we have both fear and love for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our mouths should be preaching as well. We should be proclaimers and ambassadors of reconciliation. In fact, we shouldn't be able to keep our mouths shut. We truly believe this good news. And this morning, I invite you to come and in a physical way, partake of the good news of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood poured out for you as we take communion together. And if you're new with us, we have uh, three communion uh, sites up here and then a couple back in the, in the lobby. And you're welcome to come and take it at your own, 
in your own timing, in your own way. You can take it back to your seat or you can come up here with others and share it together. But as we do so, let's remember this great message that has been given us, that has, has made us right with God, reconciled us with the creator of the universe, has made us into new creations, has cleared our slate with God so that he looks at us as sinless and righteous. This is the greatest message in the universe. And let's go from here, having partaken, having heard, let's go from here filled with the Spirit to the world as ambassadors of reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful that you have done the greatest thing and you have come. We're convinced of this, that one, that you have died for all and because of that we have died and you died for all so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves but for you who for our sake died and was raised. Father, we pray with Paul today that we would love to be away and with you at home. But Lord, you have us here right now for a reason, for a purpose. And so I pray that you would just give us laser sight to see through the, the things of the world that distract us, that take our concerns, that hijack our hearts and our minds and our attention and our worries and our concerns and refocus our sights on the Son of God, your Son, Jesus Christ, who the joy that was set before him scorned the cross or endured the cross and despised and scorned its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, we look to, to you for help in our time of need. Would you empower us with your spirit that we might truly be ambassadors of reconciliation? We, we don't go out of here tooting our own horns. We've got to hear as jars of clay fragile, weak, and needing, and needy. And as you use us, God, as those jars of clay, would you get the glory for all that you do? In your name we pray, amen.